This is episode 23 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, I talk about the enigmatic T. Nelson Downs. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, the podcast where I talk about the incredible rich history of magic and magicians. Not black magic, not Harry Potter magic, but rather conjuring, sleight of hand, and theatrical magic and magicians. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 23 of the podcast. Before we get too far into things, I want to go over some current events that relate to magic history. First off, Potter and Potter Auctions uh, has announced that they have a uh, part two of their magic collection of Jim Rollins auction will take place on June 29th. And just last weekend, I believe they did their spring auction. And sadly, I did not win the one single item I was bidding on. Surprise. It was the very last item on, in the auction, and it was uh, Cesario Palaez's uh, yellow-green linking ring costume that he wore in the Le Grand David show. So uh, whoever uh, won that, congratulations. I, uh, I bailed because I was afraid it was going to go too high. So you got it for a pretty good price. Congratulations. There is a new blog you should check out called thenightacademy.com slash blog. There's an article on there about Harry Keller. This is Nicholas Knight's website, and he talks about his portrayal of Keller uh, for the 2015 LA Conference on Magic History. And there is a video link on there of his performance as Keller that he gave at the Magic Castle a few years back. I have watched this video 50 times if I've watched it once. It's it's great. It's fantastic. Finally, I, I want to just say thank you to everyone that has reached out to me with their thoughts on the podcast. I, I'm seriously overwhelmed that everyone that, that has contacted me. Um, has told me they love the podcast. I knew it was going to take a while to find an audience, but um, it seems that those who have found the podcast stick with it, so I'm forever grateful. And the only thing I can add is please tell your friends so that we get an even larger audience. That'll be great. Let's get into today's feature. T. Nelson Downs is surely a name everybody in magic has heard of. Even if you're new to magic, you may have heard of the Downs Palm or at least the Miser's Dream Effect. And yet, with his popularity, do we really know much about T. Nelson Downs? Probably not. And so, uh, I decided to put on the old detective hat and find out a little bit more. He was born Thomas Nelson Downs, March 16, 1867, in Garwin, Iowa, though most references just say Marshalltown, where he grew up. According to David Price's fine historical book, Thomas was actually a twin, but his fellow twin did not survive. And word was that a few believed Thomas would survive as well because he was only two pounds at birth. He did survive and was the youngest of three children. His father died when he was only six months old, and the family moved around quite a bit, eventually ending up in Marshalltown, Iowa. How did Downs become interested in magic, you're probably wondering. Well, here it is in his own words. I was first inspired by a town hall magician when I was about 12 years old. After seeing him turn ink into water and make cards rise magically from the pack, I was hooked. It was all easy and simple to me, so I went home and duplicated the performance and immediately commenced 
to the study of the art by purchasing all the books on the subject I could find. That's Downs himself saying that. Um, at least one of the books was likely Professor Hoffman's Modern Magic, which came out in 1876. Uh, Downs himself also re referring to uh, going into the business of magic that Ed Reno got him started in the business. Uh, Ed Reno was probably the first professional magician that Downs ever saw. Fawcett Ross in the February 1939 issue of The Linking Ring reveals that in Marshalltown, Iowa, there lived a man named Frank Taylor. Mr. Taylor was the manager of a business called the Old Bowler, which was right next to and actually part of the Chicago and Northern Railroad Station. Mr. Taylor was known to be an above-average sleight-of-hand man and manipulator. He's even mentioned in the book Leaves of Conjurer's Scrapbooks by Burlingame. It turns out that T. Nelson Downs worked as a telegrapher or telegraph operator at the railroad station the same time that Frank Taylor was working at the old bowler. And it's certainly possible that Downs learned some magic from Taylor, though Downs never revealed this to anybody during his life. If nothing else, it's possible that Taylor served as an inspiration to Downs, who was just at that point learning. Or Taylor might have been the magician that Downs saw as a kid. It's hard to say. Uh, young T. Nelson Downs, as I just mentioned, took a job as a telegraph operator at the Chicago and Northern Railroad Station when he was 16 years old. He would continue working there until 1895. And numerous sources say that it was during his 12 years at the railroad station that he perfected his skill in manipulation. He was constantly seen with coins and cards while working. He worked the night shift when things were slower, so that gave him more time to concentrate on his manipulations. By the way, I'll be referring to T. Nelson Downs from here on out as Tommy Downs. That's the name that his friends called him. In 1890, Tommy Downs married Nellie Stone, in October 1894, his son Raymond was born. Only a few months later, on April 8, 1895, his wife Nellie died. Raymond was sent to live with his grandparents, and Tommy would go out on his own as a performer. Just to backtrack just slightly, when Tommy was 16, he gave his first performance that was a public performance. The program was a variety show with a number of performers. Only one was singled out as probably being professional, and that was Tommy. And this event was recorded in his local paper, so we know Tommy was doing shows even while working for the railroad station. Now, if we fast forward to 1891, Tommy Downs did not start out as the king of coins. He worked with a partner who was a mandolinist, Sam Siegel. Tommy presented manipulation as well as escapes, hypnotism, and even mind-reading a la John Randall Brown which is what it says in the David Price book. By the way, I covered John Randall Brown in episode 15 of the podcast, if you want to check that out. I would imagine that either Tommy took gigs on his days off or during the day, but they had to be you know, close enough where he could make it back to the railroad station at night. The partnership with Siegel didn't last very long. Now, now we're up to about 1895, and Tommy's wife, Nellie, of course, has passed away. He's decided to go out on his own. Despite consulting with other magicians about the possibility of doing an all-coin act, he was discouraged uh, by everyone he asked. He decided to do it anyway. He took an engagement at the Hopkins Theater in Chicago with his Miser's Dream Act, and it was a hit. In fact, in a letter to Fawcett Ross, Tommy shares a story from that show. It goes like this. 
Show business is a funny thing. The first vaudeville house I have ever worked was the Hopkins Theater in Chicago. And while there, the manager told me, Downs, you have a great act, but you will never be a real success in this country until you first make a success in Europe. He was 100% correct. After a year in England, France, and Germany, I was besieged with offers and contracts in America, and it is a poor rule that won't work both ways. I have met a lot of European acts that got nowhere in their own country until they first made it in America. No one had ever seen an act like Tommy's. He was the first of the specialty acts and likely the first of the manipulation acts. His success in the Midwest caused his salary to quickly rise, and he soon went to New York City and then off to England. Tommy claims to have invented the miser's dream, though the trick itself goes back many years, having been presented by 19th century conjurers as the shower of money, aerial treasury, and by other names. And rather, I, I think it's best served to say that Downs created the act known as the miser's dream, as he did greatly expand upon the trick, adding unique slights and clever moments and bits of business to the routine. A point not often mentioned, though, Tommy spoke throughout the act. It was not presented silent to music, so he had witty patter to go along with all the amazing sleight of hand. His book, Modern Coin Manipulation, does a great job capturing the various parts of the act, though the book does contain some slights that I can't help but wonder if they were just put in there to show how difficult things could be, and maybe those weren't necessarily in the, uh, the act itself. In 1895, Mahatma Magazine said of Downs, all his work is absolutely new original and puzzling even to magicians. We are frank to say that we believe him to be the cleverest man living with coins and justly entitled to the name King of Coins. In 1895, the inventor of the Handcuff Act, Mr. B.B. Keyes, sold his act through the magic dealer W.D. Leroy of Boston. It was sold as Escape from Sing Sing or the Great Handcuff Act, the first person to purchase it was Tommy Downs, but it doesn't appear that he ever used them. However, in the November 1930 issue of the Sphinx magazine, T. Nelson Downs relates a story of meeting up with Houdini at their hotel while Houdini was working the London Alhambra. Downs took from his trunk a ring of 52 keys and said to Houdini, Here are the tools you do your act with. Houdini replied, Tom, I don't use keys. You know I didn't have the money to buy those keys. And then Downs looks at him and says, Well, you can't open them with hot air. From Leroy's catalog, the price of the Great Handcuff Act was $75. And I, I went through this catalog, and most everything was under 10 There were a few items that reached 20 and 30 and there was a sub-trunk that was 7 or I'm sorry, the sub-trunk was $50. But the most expensive thing in that catalog was the Great Handcuff Act at 75 So who knows? Maybe Houdini didn't have the money at the time, or maybe he did. There's a great story that has related numerous sources about Downs' first visit to New York City. Apparently, Downs stopped into Otto Maurer's magic shop and told him that he was in town performing. And not only that, he was making $100 a week. And Maurer said to Downs, No magician has ever been paid that kind of money. Get out of my shop. And at least one source actually claims the amount was $150. 
Otto Maurer was known, by the way, to have taught the front and back palm to a number of magicians, but Tommy claimed he did the trick first at the Opera House in Boone, Iowa, around 1891. And by 1898, he had turned it into an act all of its own uh, by making multiple cards vanish, showing his hands empty, and then reproducing them. He actually used this as an encore to his miser's dream act. In April of 1899, Tommy Downs secured a booking to play England, specifically the Palace Theatre in London. And it's safe to say he took London by storm as no one had seen an act like his. He was constantly being interviewed in the paper because of his unique act. Soon, other American acts would find their way to London. Folks like Thurston, Houdini, Lafayette, William Robinson, and more. David Price's book even says that Robinson confided in Downs that he was going to challenge the Chinese magician Ching Ling Fu. So Downs suggested to Robinson that he use the name Chung Ling Su during the challenge. Will Goldston wrote this of Tommy Downs. T. Nelson Downs, the king of coins, and truly he deserves the title, is one of the best, both as magician and gentleman. And as talent is sure to come to the top, he has an abundance of it. He has certainly got there. His manipulation of coins is marvelous. His audiences are often to be seen with their mouths wide open and amazed at his wonderful dexterity. Downs tells the story about his days of working at the train station. Sometimes when things were slow, he would go out into the waiting room and show tricks to the travelers and farmers or whoever was there. There was one incident where he showed some coin magic to Fred Stone and his brother. They were working the Taylor Circus at the time, doing a high-wire act. Well, fast forward 14 years, and Fred Stone was in London performing. On this particular day, he was visiting with some fellow performers. One of the entertainers was bragging about the incredible coin manipulations presented by T. Nelson Downs at the London Palace Theatre. Fred spoke up and said, "Ah, No, I'm sorry, but the best coin man on the planet works at a little train station in Marshalltown, Iowa. Well, it turned out they both were correct because that little telegraph operator was now headlining the palace. In another letter, Tommy wrote, One of the first magicians I met in London was Charles Bertram, and he told me, Downs, you're really not a magician, but rather a manipulator and juggler. Why why don't you do tricks? I answered, The reason I don't do tricks is because everyone else does tricks. If I did tricks, I probably wouldn't be working the palace. Another of Tommy's first contacts in London was William Hillier, who saw Tommy at the Palace Theater. He soon became his agent. Tommy continued on at the palace for six months. They actually wanted him to stay longer, but he had other engagements to attend to. It was during this time that Tommy wrote the book Modern Coin Manipulation, which would explain his entire act, plus many other unique slights he had developed over the years. William Hillier edited the book. Speaking of Hillier, this incident involved him, and it takes place in the early 1900s. He says, I visited the Theatre des Robert Houdin in Paris. They had a replica of Houdin's stage settings, large center and side tables with traps running through to the wings. The performance was given by a French conjurer named Carminelli. One of his features was the wrapping hand. A few years later, though, I again visited Houdin's theater, this time accompanied by Nelson Downs. Carminelli this time was doing the aerial treasury. 
and he borrowed Downs's hat for the purpose. I can't help but wonder if he ever knew that he was using the master's hat. Here's more from Hillier via Mahatma Magazine. I've been in Paris the last month, but have not seen much conjuring. According to what I'm told, magic does not seem to be, well, does not seem to take on here very well. There is, however, one exception, T. Nelson Downs, the King of Coins, whose wonderfully clever coin act goes great here and has, as I understand, been re-engaged for the next three years at the Follies Marigné, the most fashionable theater in Paris. This notwithstanding the fact that one of the best of his best imitators preceded him in Paris, but when Downs appeared, the public could tell at once that there was only one King of Coins. I wonder what Robert Houdin would say if he saw Downs' show. If I remember rightly, Robert Houdin said that with practice, it was possible to palm two coins. Downs palms 45 coins. But in addition to his digital cleverness, he has that gentlemanly appearance and pleasing manner which makes his show go. He is booked for the three solid years in the finest theaters in the world at an enormous salary, and he carries his apparatus in his waistcoat pocket. Now I'll give you the secret to Downs' success. Originality. He originated the King idea, and although he has been copied by hundreds, the others, they're not it. There you are, my magical brothers. Work out some new idea and you will suddenly become famous. Here's Downs talking about an incident in Paris. I've often wondered just how much an audience sees when a magician does a trick. In 1900, I was playing a long engagement at the Marinade Casino in Paris. And one night, I walked out on stage and I started to do the act and I suddenly realized that I had forgotten to load up with coins. I had the top hat, but no coins, and they were on the table in the wings. And what could I do? Well, I started to do the act without coins, just pantomiming, catching them from the air. I did this for like three minutes. And then I took a bow and received terrific applause. And during the applause, I stepped off stage, loaded up, and continued with the act. But honestly, I don't think the audience ever knew the difference. And here's a story from a letter to Fawcett Ross from Tommy Downs. As you know, I played 26 consecutive weeks at the Palace Theater in London. After my first show there, Mr. Morton, the manager, came backstage and complimented the act. He said, Mr. Downs, I am particularly impressed by the slow and deliberate manner in which you walk off stage and on stage. It's very impressive. Well, <clears throat> I didn't have the nerve to tell him the truth. You see, when I first arrived in London, I did a lot of walking in order to see the sights. The result was I developed sore feet, and there was no choice. I had to walk slowly. So I've been doing it ever since. Another interesting thing happened during my palace engagement. After a few weeks, I decided to I was going to build up the act a little bit by adding a coin wand, which I always liked. Well, after the first show using the wand, Mr. Morton came to the dressing room and said, Mr. Downs, my patrons are utterly intrigued with your great digital dexterity, but tonight you disillusion them by using that mechanical stick which has no place in your fine act. Well, I saw that he was right, and I never used it again from that day to this. It's a good trick, but it's not for me. 
1901, John Northern Hilliard was the dramatic critic and editorial writer for the Rochester Post Express. He wrote a glowing review of Downs's act. Here's a little of what he had to say. There is a real magician in Rochester. His name is T. Nelson Downs, and he is working his wonders at the Cook Opera House this week. Mr. Downs is billed as the king of coins, and there is no magician on any stage in any country today who can compete with Mr. Downs as a manipulator of either coins or cards. This much conceded even by members of Mr. Downs's own profession. He stands absolutely alone in his chosen field. While in London, Downs became a sensation. He not only worked the Palace Theatre, but he appeared before the Prince of Wales, who would go on to later become the King of England. The Prince loved Tommy's magic so much that after the performance was over, he requested Tommy to stay and teach him some magic, which he gladly did. Shortly after this performance for the Prince of Wales, he was appearing before Queen Victoria. In fact, his standing with the royals of Europe was quite high. He performed before Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany, Emperor Franz Joseph of Austria, Abdul Hamid, the Sultan of Turkey, and even the Tsar of Russia. As he toured throughout Europe, he appeared in Paris at the Marigny Casino and the Follies Bergère, the Winter Garden in Berlin, and when he returned to London, he appeared at the Empire Theatre for 40 weeks at twice the money he had made at the Palace Theatre. Now, here is something I came across that was, quite frankly, a big surprise. Tommy Downs, T. Nelson Downs, was interested in illusions, as in grand illusion. As early as 1900, he had purchased an illusion where a woman is tossed into the air, away from any furniture or stage settings, and vanishes in a flash of flame. He purchased this from William Hillier. In 1905, he worked with illusionist Ernest Thorne and created and patented an effect for making a person or object vanish while suspended under a table. He also worked with Will Goldston and created an illusion where a person could appear inside a glass bottle, which was also suspended in the air. The effect is in a book called Latest Conjuring by Goldston. came out in 1905. The illusion is called the Goldston Downs Bottle Illusion. In 1905, Tommy married Harriet Rocky on June 3rd. She already had a son who was born in 1896, and I don't know if this son was his or if he later adopted the boy. But the point is, he got married a second time. In 1908, John Northern Hilliard edited Down's book, The Art of Magic. Years later, John Northern Hilliard would go on to become Howard Thurston's publicity agent. In 1910, this illusion idea came back up, and this time he, he teams up with a fellow from California who was fairly unknown at the time. His name was Guy Jarrett. Together, they created a new act, which would start with the miser's dream, and then after, they would present four unique illusions. All of these creations were Jarrett's. The act was called In Midair Illusions, he clearly had something for this concept. The first illusion was Guy's boy, girl, and sack. It was a transformation effect where a rather large woman was placed inside a sack, which was then suspended in midair. She would vanish from there and reappear somewhere in the audience while a skinny man came out of the sack. Another effect that they did was called the, the table coat disappearance. A small undraped table that had been standing in plain view was now placed 
and center stage. The assistant puts on a long coat and hat, climbs up on the table. The magician pulls the coat and hat up in midair by the aid of a rope and pulley. When the coat collapses, the man is gone. The final illusion was called The Mystery of Mysteries. This was Jarrett's Bangkok Bungalow, which was an incredible mystery, which would later become a feature in Howard Thurston's show. But Downs was the first to get it. He was the first to get any of these illusions. The coin manipulator who traveled light was now hauling 2,400 pounds of baggage and two additional assistants. And for whatever reason, the act did not play well. And perhaps Downs was not cut out to be an illusionist. It's hard to say. But because of Downs's notoriety, it helped Guy Jarrett become well-known. And that's how Jarrett uh, was introduced to Thurston. So there's a connection there. In another letter to Fawcett Ross, Tommy writes, I've never claimed to have invented all the tricks and magic. I did take the old coin-catching trick, elaborated it, added a few new slights and a new manner of presentation, and made an act out of it. I, uh, By the way, I do claim to be the originator of the famous diamond penny trick, however. I got the idea in like around 1909. In 1910, a jeweler friend of mine made up the first outfit for me. And after a few months, I showed it to a friend of mine who was a traveling man. He showed it without my permission to Carl Brema, the Philadelphia magic dealer who, not knowing it was mine, put it on the market. During the past 20 years, thousands of them have been sold, but as for me, I've never received any cash or been given any credit. The moral of this story is, if you have something really good, either keep it to yourself or make sure you will be reimbursed if it is placed on the market. On February 19, 1910, Tommy Downs' mother passes away in Marshalltown. But along with that, something strange happened. The very same day that Mrs. Downs died, her sister, who lived quite a distance away in New York City, also died. Both of them were 78 years old. So I guess it's another strange connection that twins have. In March of 1911, another tragedy struck. This time, Tommy's house caught on fire. And the odd thing was, he had just sold the house, but he had not yet moved out. So he lost all of his belongings, all of his furniture, clothing, all his magic equipment. The loss was reported to be around $2,500 worth of items, but his insurance policy only covered $500. And what do you think Tommy Downs did about it? Well, he quickly got back on the road and started working. Tommy Downs was a man with a plan. And that plan, and he had it all along apparently, was to make $50,000. The equivalent of a little over a million dollars today. And he reached that goal in 1912. And then he set out to retire. He apparently purchased some rental property in Marshalltown and moved back to his hometown. He was 42 when he left the stage. He would occasionally come out of retirement for private gigs and charity events. In fact, he created a full evening show, which is quite fascinating. And here again, in Tommy's own words, listen to this. My full evening show runs about like this. I usually open with a torn and restored paper ribbon, which is my own version, 
then a simple cigarette routine concluding with the vanish of a lighted cigarette at the fingertips. I followed this with about five minutes of billiard ball manipulations. Next, the miser's dream, my specialty. I then go into card work. Uh, tricks like the lady's looking glass, the general card, mental spelling, two-card stabbing, uh, a few fancy shuffles, and conclude with my back palm routine. Next, a borrowed bill and lemon, which always amazes them. I think, uh, I think next I do a vanish of a handkerchief and then reproduce it from a spectator's coat, followed by a, a big string of 30 more handkerchiefs. And I always finish the act with a patriotic number. I produce a red, white, and blue handkerchief and then blend them into a 36-inch silk American flag. And then, just when the spectators think it's all over, bingo! I produce two big six-foot flags on staffs. And that's about all there is to it. Just a small three-ring circus in one suitcase and no fuss or bother. T. Nelson Downs remained close to the magic world, attending conferences, corresponding with, and meeting with magicians when he could. He and Houdini were good friends, spending many hours together talking magic. They originally met many years before at the Chicago World's Fair. In the 1901 Mahatma magazine, this little piece appears. It goes like this. Travelers returning from Europe report the existence of a powerful, mutual admiration society composed entirely of magicians whose acts are features. The passwords are Houdini. I've seen all kinds of magical acts, but without exception, yours is really the acme of perfection. Or Downs, I don't often praise a man, but whenever I see your act, I can't help thinking that there can never be another act conceived that will be anywhere near as marvelous. It is rumored that there were only two members of this society. One year later, Houdini and Downs would be early members of the newly formed Society of American Magicians. There are many pictures of Downs and Houdini together. One taken back very early, probably uh, when they were both performing in London, and one of the last was taken in Houdini's backyard. In 1935, Downs started to suffer from an illness that lasted three years. He died on September 11th, 1938, and is buried in the Riverside Cemetery in Marshalltown, Iowa. If you're curious what other magicians thought of Downs, here's a, a few quotes. This is from Houdini. Uh, they're still talking about your wonderful coin work here. They all agree with me that you are the greatest manipulator of coins that ever lived. Henry Ridgely Evans said, Downs remains the unapproachable manipulator of coins. Edward VII of England was charmed with the American skill. John Northern Hilliard said, T. Nelson Downs is the greatest sleight-of-hand man in the world today, which means he is the greatest magician in the world. Masculine and Devant said of T. Nelson Downs, The miser's dream, admirably performed, the king of coins and his obedient subjects. T. Nelson Downs' charming personality, grace, rhythm of presentation, and marvelous dexterity in all of his work is the standard by which all others should be judged. No wonder he appeared before all the crowned heads of Europe, a European favorite, a vaudeville headliner, and a sensation wherever he played. T. Nelson Downs is king of coins, the greatest of them all.
all honor to him. He will never be forgotten and you will never see his equal. Now, I thought I'd end this podcast slightly differently than usual. Fawcett Ross had exchanged many letters with Downs during his life, and the Gen magazine in January 1958 featured an issue with many of these letters. In fact, some of this that you've heard in the podcast comes from that uh, magazine. I'd like to leave you with just uh, a little bit of advice from T. Nelson Downs himself that comes from those letters. Here's some right now. If I had any constructive advice to offer a young person starting out in magic, it would be this. At the outset, they should do as many different tricks and routines as possible before the public. By doing so, they will learn quickly things that they can do best and the ones that register the most strongly with an audience. Here's another one. I turned down a lot of chances to do my act for 15 or $20. I could have used the money, but I can't afford to lower my reputation by working cheap. The more they pay you, the more they will respect and enjoy you. A fellow called me the other day, and he said, Mr. Downs, we'd like to book your act, but we don't have much money right now. So I answered, well, I'm a patient guy, so I'll be willing to wait until you get enough. Magicians nowadays are always complaining that there's nothing new, but the trouble is that they can't see the forest on account of the trees. There are, there's dozens, hundreds of good tricks described in books that most magicians have never even bothered to read, and that not even one of them is even tried out in public. Take my own book, The Art of Magic, for example. Turn to page 107 and read the description of my own version of the flying cards. For, for nearly 30 years, I've been doing the trick on stage and off, exactly as described. Then, then turn to page 71 and read the details of the general card. This is my favorite card trick, and it's almost an act in itself. Let me have this one, and you can keep all the rest of them. And finally, a few words from Tommy Downs that should be eye-opening to every magician. This is from the February 1923 edition of Mum Magazine. It goes like this. Allow me to state that our beloved Harry Keller was not only my personal friend, but I was one of his most ardent admirers. However, Alexander Herman has always been, in my mind, the ideal magician. Herman looked, lived, and acted the part. He had three or four small tricks brought to a state of near perfection. These tricks were a part of his personality, and he never lost an opportunity to exploit them. Now, I claim the great trouble with, the, with most magicians is they want to look and act like Herman. And what's more, and, or what's worse, uh, they want to do the same tricks he did in exactly the same style. It can't be did. And by the way, you could take out the name Herman here and insert Copperfield, Blaine, Shin Lim, Darren Brown. I think you get the point. He further goes on. The late Charles Bertram of Isn't It Wonderful fame was playing at the Grand Theater in Chicago, and the late William Robinson, Chung Ling Su, took me down into Bertram's dressing room, where I did my full act for him. When I finished, Bertram said, Very clever, young man, but why don't you do tricks? I then replied, Well, the reason I don't do tricks is because other magicians do tricks. I believe neither Mr. Bertram nor I realized the full significance of that remark until several years later when I was creating quite a sensation at the Palace Theatre in London. 
where I remained a feature for 26 consecutive weeks. And, oh, by the way, your reference to the Winter Garden in Berlin reminds me that I was warned by professional friends and theatrical agents not to sign a contract for that establishment. I was assured my act would be a complete failure there and would ruin me for Germany. And the predictions, as you are aware, were all wrong. As I played there eight weeks in 1900 and a month's return engagement about a year later, no doubt the fact that I possessed a very strong and penetrating voice and I knew how to you know, use it to good advantage had considerable to do with my success there and elsewhere. I have always contended that a magician to meet with any marked degree of success must be an actor. Hundreds of people do tricks, but they cannot all convince. Yes, yes, that's, that's the word. Convince an audience. My point is that it's not the particular trick that makes the magician, but it's the magician who makes that particular trick. I claim the public did not go to see Keller's or Herman's tricks, but on the contrary, they went to see the individual's great men's personalities in particular. Their tricks were, well, they were simply incidental. And I will further elucidate, a few days ago, I made a long voyage to see a celebrated mystifier, getting up myself at 6 a.m. with the thermometer at 20 below zero and traveling some 70 miles to see this miracle worker. Can anyone imagine me going 70 miles to see a mere magician do tricks? Not on your life. Now, the man that Downs was referring to was Houdini. And I just found this line, this line that I mentioned earlier, I just found it really incredible. Hundreds of people do tricks, but they can't convince. To do that takes a very special performer, part actor, part magician, a person who lives his or her material. This is incredible wisdom from Tommy Downs. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. I do want to mention that um, one other thing really quick in regards to Tommy's act, Miser's Dream. Back in 2008, Levent, the great comedy magician and excellent manipulator, put out a DVD set on the Miser's Dream. It's five hours worth of slights and tricks, including the routines of Al Flosso, Charlie Miller, Roy Benson, Paul Patassi, Robert Houdin, and of course, T. Nelson Downs. And it is totally worth checking out. It is extensive. And yes, it's a teaching DVD, but I, I have to say this. I honestly don't know if it's available anymore. I have a copy. I love it. I've, I've, it's five hours. I've probably watched it three or four times. It's just, just incredible. If you want to see if it's available, I would try to contact Levent through his website, which is leventmagic.com, and see if it's available. It's, it's really worth it. It's great. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast, episode 23. Please remember to like the podcast and tell others about it as well. If you listen via iTunes, consider giving the podcast a five-star review if you think it's worthy of it. Uh, oh, by the way, recently I was picked up by iHeartRadio. So in the podcast section of iHeartRadio, you can also listen to the podcast there. That was pretty exciting and unexpected. Until next time, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Have a great week.